Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Authority of the King. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Finding or Losing Our Lives. Almost no one wants to die. I know there are those who commit suicide, but when they do so, the internal pain and a kind of despair that, that loses all hope simply overwhelms them. It was Ralph Barton who once said, I'm fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. Boredom, physical pain, deep depression, overwhelming disappointments, deep despair, that can all lead to suicide. And when it happens, it usually impacts families left behind for a lifetime. Choosing death is among all human cultures of this earth a matter which is conceived of as evil. Most of us want life more than anything else. When famous musician and pianist Liberace was dying of complications due to AIDS, he said that he would gladly give up all of his extensive wealth and pampered lifestyle. He, he would trade it all in just to have his health back. He just desperately wanted to live. And his encounter with his own impending death helped clarify a great many things. A lifetime spent pursuing wealth and personal satisfaction paled in comparison to that most basic of all commodities, life. Yes, I know there are those who seek martyrdom for reasons of glory and fame, and there are those who live in such horror that they seek death. But by far the vast, vast majority of us want life. We simply want to live. But of course, we won't continue to live. We are going to die. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed unto a man once to die. The sons and daughters of Adam will all die. The mortality rate in Canada, 100%. Retirement planners are trained to ask if we have enough to make it through retirement, but what they really mean is, will you have enough until you will surely die? And when you die, all your retirement funds are worthless. I know that some of us put a brave face on, but we really wish we didn't die, all of us. And there is no doubt, death always wins, both for non-believers and for believers. Regardless of which God you serve or whether you serve only yourself, the same destiny awaits us all. Or as Solomon put it so well, a live dog is worth more than a dead lion. Living life fully while facing the ever-present reality of death is very hard to do. And so we, if we're wise and see our doctor regularly and try to eat well and get exercise and try to maintain a positive outlook in life, but as we all know, it's of no avail. Death will claim us. And for that reason, it's very important to ask ourselves if there are matters that are more important than life. Because if avoiding death is our ultimate aim, or if living for pleasure is our aim, or if living for today is our ultimate aim, or if fulfilling our bucket list is our aim, we will lose the things we value, every one of them. Death will not be avoided. Hoping that the good times will go on is a useless hope. For that hope will definitely not be fulfilled. You know that. See, I say this against the background of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10. Having performed miracles that surely gave rise to the hope that disease and death would be helpless against this king, Jesus then sends his disciples on mission. 
And he promises them not wealth and health or even a long-enduring life, nor the applause of men. He promises them persecution and the hatred of men. Who in their right mind would agree to those terms? What possible benefit can there be in following a Messiah who promises his followers that he is setting them out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and they are not to worry about those who can kill the body? Who listens to this? Is this not the height of madness? See, I wonder what the disciples must have been thinking as he was laying out the terms for their discipleship. But Jesus must clearly have known their thoughts. I'm reading Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So let's begin with Jesus' strange statement that he did not come to bring peace to the earth. And even as it must have sounded strange to the disciples, it does for us who are reading this statement 2,000 years later. Does it not sound equally strange? It is strange. Indeed, it seems to go against so much that we know to be true in Scripture. Isaiah 9, 6, a well-known passage predicting the coming of the Messiah, says that his name will be called Prince of Peace. We often quote that passage at Christmas saying, we now celebrate the coming of peace into the world. And furthermore, in Luke 1, verse 79, when Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, prophesies regarding the work of his own son, he says that his son will prepare the way for the Messiah, and then Zechariah adds, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That was Zechariah's expectation, and that expectation was surely not misplaced. After all, Jesus was born, and the angels appeared to the shepherds in the field, and they pronounced peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. And that was in line with the expectations of the Messiah that's found in the First Testament. Read the words of Isaiah regarding the time when the Messiah reigns. I'm reading Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, I do know that when New Testament believers read this passage, we will immediately assume that this speaks of Messiah's second advent. That he comes to provide forgiveness of sins at his first coming, and then he comes at a second time to establish his kingdom that will never end, and then there will be peace. But for just a moment, think about what we find in the New Testament. First, the Sermon on the Mount, quoted in Matthew, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, whatever he meant by that, Jesus believed that his kingdom was made up of peaceful, peace-loving, and peacemaking people, not violent people who bring a sword into human relationships. Notice also Paul's teaching in Ephesians 2 verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, Ephesians 2 is a fascinating chapter. In that chapter, Paul is describing a mystery that was not made known in the past, but it is now revealed in Christ. 
That mystery is that Jesus has taken two different men, and by that he means the Jewish man and the Gentile man, and that he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between them. In Christ, both Jews and Gentiles learn that they are made into one family so that Paul will say he, that is Jesus, came and preached peace to those who are far off, that's to the Gentiles, those who have no covenant with God, and he preached peace to those who were near, that is, to the Jewish people. Peace was announced to both. Jesus, not the law and the temple or cultural traditions, but it's Jesus himself who is our peace. And if I might add a personal story to that. You know, for years I pastored a church that became one of the largest churches in the country. We had 12 different language groups. On one Sunday, I was in the foyer and I was engaged in a conversation with three other men. And as you know, my background is German and another man in that conversation was Jewish. You know, and I don't have to recount the German treatment of the Jews in the last century. Another man was Syrian. And the last man, well, he was just a Canadian. He was raised in a secular culture. And it suddenly occurred to me as we were talking that Jesus was to the four of us exactly what Paul saw him to be for Jews and Gentiles. He himself is our peace who has taken people from violently opposed backgrounds and made us into a band of brothers who loved each other dearly and who knew the sacred privilege of praying together and approaching the throne of God's grace, knowing nothing other than Jesus who has made us one. See, my story is not alone. I once met a Christian Palestinian on the West Bank who expressed to me his deep love for his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, of course, there is so much more that we can say about Jesus' role in bringing peace. So, for instance, Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ the long war in which not only were we hostile towards God, but God had directed his righteous wrath against us. That war is over with the death of Jesus. No greater peace can be found than the peace that is found between God and man. Christ brought that as well. So in every way imaginable, whether we talk of peace between people or between us and God, Christ himself represents peace. So we have to ask ourselves, how can he say, I didn't come to bring peace? As we do every October, this year we're offering a 2022 scripture calendar based upon Dr. Neufeld's recent book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. Throughout the year, you'll be reminded of God's great provision for those who believe featuring wonderful pictures of crosses around the world, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and passages of scripture that remind us of all the benefits of our salvation. I believe this is one of Back to the Bible Canada's best scripture calendars, and it's yours for free as our gift. Just call to request your copy today as quantities are limited. We pray this will be an inspiration to express gratitude to God throughout 2022. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Additional calendars to your free calendar are also available at $10 each. Now, in truth, the biblical view of peace is so much more than the absence of conflict. 
Notice what James says in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. And then later, James adds, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, according to Scripture, the cause of conflict is self-centered passion. The cause of conflict is a conflict that exists within oneself. But here again, Christ plays the central role because according to Romans 6 verse 1, we who believe have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. I could add more. Christ has a role in restoring broken sinners. He allows the vilest among us to be restored and brought into the community of God's people. Furthermore, the impact of the Christian faith into the wider culture just can't be overstated. The call to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us is an ethic which finds its way into warring people groups. And here I mean people groups who have been taught in the past to get revenge on their enemies lest they lose face. You see, in that kind of a culture, war never ends. Neither does misery. But Christ's people have been taught to love their enemies, and then we can be like yeast that pervades the wider dough of the culture. All of that to say, I can think of hundreds of ways, both in terms of the future kingdom and in terms of the present reality, in which Christ has come and brought peace, peace with God, and peace with fellow human beings. Christ's role in this world is one of peace. That's why some of us are left scratching our heads at the shocking statement in in Matthew 10, 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, what we have here has been called a mashal. A mashal is a paradoxical saying, one that sounds unbelievable. It surprised the disciples, and they would have been as shocked as we are to hear Jesus say this. But a mashal, a paradoxical statement is made to help the person hearing it to see part of what is being said in a way that we would never have thought of unless we heard it in this shocking way. See, contrast Christ's statement to the health and wealth gospel that's sometimes being preached in our day. See, I'm talking about those preachers that proclaim that if you have the proper kind of faith, you can have whatever you say, and so wealth and health can be yours, including anything else. But that's only one example. But here we're still left with the question, how is it that on the one hand, Jesus can speak of being a peacemaker, and on the other hand, he speaks of bringing a sword and dividing family members against each other, so much so that members of one's own family will be among one's most extreme enemies? And the answer to this is that it's supposed to be hard to follow Jesus. It's supposed to cost you much. It's intended that following Jesus might lead to your own death. You know, in the Roman world, picking up your cross meant only one thing. Those who picked up their cross were condemned criminals who, to their own humiliation, were not only to be cruelly executed, but they were called to actually carry the very instrument of their execution to the place of their death. And so it's not hard to understand this. Jesus says, in this way, you will prove whether or not you are worthy of me. If you don't love me more than life, you can't have me. Just to follow Jesus means that one is willing to throw one's life away at any moment. So let's try to define that. 
The followers of Jesus are never meant to be the ones to bring dispute into human interactions. You see, Acts 5 is instructive here. The high priest has just brought a charge against the apostles. They say, and I'm quoting Acts 5.28, You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. And then comes a response in verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. That is, there is a hierarchy of values. Peace on earth is not our first value. Rather, fidelity to our God and to our Lord is. We're not permitted to pursue peace by being reconciled to the demands of a culture that's an affront to Christ. If the culture or a family or a job or anything demands of us that which is contrary to faithfulness to Christ, we will obey God rather than men. And that may cause us to be thrown out of families. It may cause us to lose our jobs. It may cost us financially. And if it does, we will obey God rather than men. But, and this is key, if there is an avenue for reconciliation, We will be the first to reconcile, for our Savior is the Prince of Peace. He is not the warlord. Well, all that's fine and well, but how does that work out in a country where our lives are not demanded of us? So let me give you a little example. See, I know a Christian who was looking for a a new car to buy. And at the same time, the call went out to give to an important missions project. And he gave generously. And then he took his case to the Lord and he said, Lord, you know that I gave generously, but now I can't afford that car. I ask you to make a way, perhaps, you know, maybe a dealership will give me a spectacular deal or perhaps money will come to me unexpectedly. I've heard so many Christians tell stories like this. So, Lord, could you do it for me? Well, that money never came in. And because of his generous gift, he never was able to afford that car. And you know what he did? He started to rejoice. He told the Lord, until now, I never knew what it meant to deny myself and to follow you. Today I know, thank you for that privilege. Now I know that I love you and your gospel more than I love new cars. Thank you for showing me that. And please don't misunderstand me. We're not all called to give up our cars. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being frugal and saving for retirement and living in such a way that we're not a burden on everyone else. But I see in my illustration of the car two important principles that that line up perfectly with Christ's statement in verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now back to the two principles. First, Troubles are supposed to make us decide whether we think that Christ is more important than life. If we choose life and comfort and safety and pleasure over Christ, we're not worthy of Christ. If you have trouble in your life and you can get out of that trouble simply by being disobedient to Christ, then you're finding your life only to lose it again in the last day. But if you can escape your difficulty, but you choose to remain faithful to Christ and as such remain in that difficulty, we've chosen to lose our life in the present situation only to find it in Christ. Now, there's a second principle. We're supposed to understand that wherever the gospel of Jesus goes, conflict is sure to follow. Martyrdom and death have followed the gospel and therefore from the outset, we'll have to decide what we want more. Do we want Jesus in his gospel to go into the earth? Or would we rather have our own personal peace and safety and wealth outside of the gospel? So what does it mean to lose our lives? 
Well, it might mean to be put to death, but as you know, the martyrs are but a small minority in the Christian faith. William Hendrickson has pointed out that in this context, life and self are in some senses interchangeable here. We must lose ourselves and our own self-interest for the sake of Christ. Listen to how Hendrickson puts it. He says, the person who, when the issue is between Christ and what he considers in his own interests, chooses the latter, thinking that by doing so, he is going to find himself, that is, secure a firmer hold on the full life, that person will be bitterly disappointed. And that's exactly what the gospel demands of us. We will have to decide whether our future is with Jesus and his promises or this world and its promises. And that brings me back to the place where I began. It's all about life and death and the fact that all of us desperately do not want to die. But in truth, we will all die. Nothing we hope for in this world is secure. Whatever we gain in this world, we only hold it for a moment, and then it's lost to us forever. And that's precisely what we know to be true in Christ. God will not withdraw death from the table of any in the human race. And he will not do so for us who profess to be followers of Jesus. He wants us to willfully deny ourselves and the things that this earth offers so that we, by so doing, declare that we trust not in this earth, but in Christ alone. And so as Martin Luther said so well, let goods and kindred go. This, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Indeed, for a kingdom that is forever, we would gladly trade away all that is for this present moment. John, I have to say, today's message, I think, is is so pointed at our culture and, and, and our need for self-expression, our need to fulfill self, our need to get everything for ourselves. Uh, the, the Bible really speaks against that. Yeah, I think, uh, Ben, you know, you've really put your finger on something. This is countercultural uh, because I, I have heard over and over again people saying, you know, the place to begin is you've got to learn to love yourself. Now, I know there's a context in which that might make sense, but the fact is that all of us already are loving ourselves. You know, we feed ourselves. We might not feed those who are needy. Uh, we pay for our own bills. We might not pay for the bills of someone else. We all love ourselves by nature to actually lose our own lives. I mean, it, it, you've got to either uh, be absolutely mad to do that or you've got to believe that Jesus' promises are true. A and if they're true and we're going to lose our lives anyway, why not gain him rather than anything else? Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow for our final message in the series, The Authority of the King, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the next Israel experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand, so we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate, register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Neufeld of Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings and the Back to the Bible Canada team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, 
commune at the Garden Tomb. Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available. So for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.